Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi everyone, it's uh, Roxanne Derhage from Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again today. Uh, today I have a special guest, uh, Dr. Raymond Abdul Raymond, and uh, he's a diversity and inclusion specialist. So uh, Raymond, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about his background and we're going to just jump into, um, you know, his expertise and kind of what um, what's needed to know for organizations and leaders um, about diversity and inclusion, but also what's happening out there uh, in the workplace now with some of the stresses that we're experiencing. So a bit about him, he's a clinical and consulting psychologist and he works with um, to, with uh, companies and individuals to catalyze insight oriented change. Um, he has worked with a range of organizations, uh, including uh, the CBC, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, MasterCard, amongst others. And um, he's 15 years of um, experience in innovative application of psychology. He's the assistant professor at the University of Manitoba and has been the visiting professor at State University of Zanzibar. And um, he's also a TEDx speaker, which I did not check that out, Raymond, I, sh I will, on resolving unconscious bias. Um, he loves cakes, which is good to know. What kind of cakes? We'll have to find out. And he's the Batman. He's a Robin to a seven-year-old Batman. So who's a seven-year-old Batman? My son. Oh, what's his name? Yeah, his name is Yusuf. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to come on and chat um, today about a topic that I know is so very important, um, has always been important. And um, but I think it's even more so now with kind of the um, the highlight, I would say, with everything happening on a global um, perspective around diversity and inclusion. So, Raymond, tell me a little bit about um what got you involved in that particular specialty in consulting with organizations? Well, okay, so I got into the business of psychology because I wanted to understand why people did things and how to help fix a lot of behavioral problems. And I think, and so my initial goal was medicine, I think, as a young person, uh, but medicine told us how, not why. And ultimately, I think in order to make change, we have to understand why things happen so I got into the profession for that. Um, you know, a, a clear clinical focus of mine was anxiety and depression and cross-cultural work as well, too. Um, but I always resented being the one guy everybody went to for diversity and inclusion work because uh, I, I didn't feel the, the work was tied to just people of color. I believe that this was work that impacted all of us. But, you know, when I had my son... Um, and prior to then, actually, I'd already been doing a lot of consulting with organizations. But when I had my son, it was really striking to watch the impact of a lack of inclusion in our society on him. And it also made me realize how much I was tolerating and just letting go to 
carry on living as smooth of a life as possible. And these are issues that are coming up for everybody. And I realized it was about time that I did something about it. And that's when I started to move a lot of my practice into consulting and helping organizations um, address these issues of how to be more equitable in their workforce. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a mental health issue, I would say. For sure. What were you seeing with your son that made you know, brought that level of consciousness to you to say, I, I need to some, do something uh, about it. Yeah, I talked about this in my TED talk. There was one critical event that really changed. And the problem is that I still see these issues. But the one event that changed is when he said to me, he was not even three yet. And he said, um, he said, Papa, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. Now, at that age, I mean, for him, what does that mean? You know, like, it's not like he's practicing everything. Like he, he just had this identity and he knew that the identity was different from other people. And when I asked him why it was that he didn't want to be a Muslim anymore, he said, it's because Paw Patrol only celebrates Christmas. And so he didn't see himself reflected in the world. And the research strongly supports that when we don't have a sense of representation or when there is a lack of inclusion, people of color tend to internalize these, um, I'd say internalize racism. And they begin to start to want to shift themselves to be somebody they're not. And the sad part is no matter how much people of color shift to themselves to try to quote unquote assimilate, uh, they're never really let into the inner circle, right? Like you, you're kind of patted on the head and patronize and you're kind of let in a little bit but um i mean we even see this in the workplace and who we hire you know for employees are 40 percent more likely to hire people with anglicized names so as and that's just we are changing our names and our identities to fit in um so that's what i saw in my son i mean i and i continue to see them you know despite me being a psychologist and uh working with him and and working on issues of inclusion you know, he lives in a world where I'm not the only influence. Of course. And there are greater influences out there outside of me. Um, and the stuff that he faces difficulty with, even as a child, you know, people of color face and cultural and ethnic and religious minorities face on a regular basis, even as adults. So his experience is not unique to him as a child. It's, it's unfortunately all too common. And I think not addressing this in the workplace and, and in our society it really, I think, allows us to sustain uh, complacency that promotes systemic racism and ultimately the poor mental health, I think, of a lot of citizens of the world. So let's talk a little bit about um, heightened awareness. Prior to, you know, the stressful space that we're in and we will be in for a while, how did senior leadership or CEOs look at diversity inclusion um, with the companies that you work with? Um, you know, I, I think uh, I've been fortunate. I think that there are the companies who approach me are the ones who are motivated to make change. Um, the dilemma that we face is that even when people are well-meaning, uh, the way in which they tend to approach issues of becoming more equitable and inclusive tends to be a bit of a bandage approach, uh, or it tends not to be uh, an initiative that is always from a fully understanding point of view of what it feels like. And so the way that these companies or any of us actually typically try to approach issues of 
equity inclusion is that we try to approach uh, our understanding of the experience of other people and their worldview. And so we try to understand how they are different versus how we are similar. And I think that's the biggest problem to begin with. Um, but furthermore, we don't look at ourselves. We don't look at what we are doing to promote that feeling in other people that they feel different. We just want to know how they're different versus why they feel different and what we are doing to make them feel that way. So when I do this work with organizations, typically that's the first thing I have them do is I have them start to identify their own biases, the own systemic racism that might exist in a workplace, even when they're well-meaning, because the truth is that we can all be well-meaning. We can all say we're not racist. And that may be, you know, in the heart's intent, very true. But when we're complacent about certain policies and practices, um, these policies and practices have existed for a very long time, and we've allowed them to perpetuate uh, systemic racism that marginalizes people. So tell me about a bandaged solution. Give me an example of potentially what a, a company might do to create a, a bandaged solution versus looking, you're, you're talking at them looking at the overall perspective from a huge system, from a macro system, all the way down to the front line, which is very micro and how that might show in behavior. But yeah. what's, what's something, give me an example of a bandaged solution that maybe a company might do or that you've worked with um, to address the concern at that time. So a lot of band, a lot of band for a lot of companies are um, statements. You know, they simply say we are against this, you know, we support the Black Lives Matter movement and that's it. So making a statement in and of itself doesn't make changes in how people who work there or people who consume things from that company or that organization might feel. Uh, it's a nice step, it's a good sentiment, but it doesn't really change things. Another bandage is what what we would call is like, a, you know, people will hire in speakers and, and I do this all the time. So, and I think, I think it's still better than nothing, but it doesn't really create change when you just have somebody come in to do a single training session. And the reason being is because change doesn't happen with a single occurrence of something, unless that occurrence is traumatic or dramatic. And, and you know, you yourself working in the case of trauma, we know that trauma will elicit changes in human behavior, but, but that's because it's traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so in order for us to elicit a more positive change, we can't have a single instance of something. That change needs to be ongoing. Um, there needs to be a sense of accountability. DNI or diversity and inclusion needs to show up on the agenda on a regular basis. We need to constantly be asking ourselves. And we don't just have that one-time training session because that comes in and leaves our consciousness. It has to be a very profound training session and it has to be quite you know, dramatic in order for that to stick with people. But even a dramatic event, you know, according to human nature will gradually dissipate if we're not always mindful of it. And so having this mindful approach to diversity and inclusion where we're consistently checking in with ourselves as an organization, but also as individuals. And that's, that's, that's how we make that change. And when I say, you know, you mentioned macro, it isn't like, yes, yes, it is macro, but it's also micro because the change comes down to the individual leaders, right? Because if we don't have a sense of empathy to truly understand what it's like, how is it that we can truly elicit that change? So it, it, it is macro, but it, it is also micro when it comes to, you know, change starts individually. I, I always say to people, you know, 
um, the biggest things began with a single thought. Mm-hmm. You know, you take, take a look at the, you know, a photograph or a poster, just the vision of New York City or, or the greater Toronto area. You know, those buildings were constructed with a single idea. That's where it began. And those ideas were supported. You know, there was a sense of accountability. There was a sense of mindfulness to keep following up. And that's how those buildings began. But they began with a single thought. But destruction of civilization also began with a single thought. Mm-hmm. It's a good, that's a really great point. So let's let's talk, I'm going, I'm going to use an example. This is going to be a funny example. But um, so... Uh, my son. Uh, so I married someone that's uh, of Canadian background. So at the time, you know, he was being born, we, you know, we thought, okay, we're going to have to talk to him. I grew up in Trinidad, by the way, I moved here um, to Canada when I was 16 to, to go to university. So of course, uh, you know, growing up in the Caribbean, it's a little bit, you get a little bit of a different perspective growing up with colonialism, but you know, my prime minister, my doctors, my dentists, everybody was diverse to begin with. So I had a different frame. And then I came to Canada and it was obviously quite different, quite dramatically at 16. I'm like, whoa, this is a lot. You know, I traveled, but had really never lived in a different culture. And so when I was having my son, um, my husband and I said, you know, we, we need to talk to him about different, not having thought about it before when we got married. And um, what happened for us was that he looks more like his dad, who he looks um, white mm-hmm. and um you know, of course, I'm brown compared to him. So it was interesting, because then we had to pivot on how we would chat with him. Mm -hmm. Because we had two different families, so the Canadian family, but then you also had this Trinidadian family, you know, who are predominantly brown. So, um, you know, what was interesting is that what we realized is that this child, he did not see color, he did not see any difference Mm -hmm. between his dad and myself, Mm -hmm. or his parents. Um, until it started to get to a point where he started to recognize color it was when, um, you know, someone said to him one time, I guess, I, I don't know how old he was, is that your mom? Mm-hmm. He said, yes, that's my mommy. He says, of course, that's my mommy. And someone said, oh, she's brown. He goes, I guess she is, because yeah. he had not thought about it before. Um, so we had to really talk to him because, of course, visibly he looks one, but he's of two cultures. Yes. Um, and that was a very interesting conversation that we started to have. But he does not like still today. He doesn't see it as being different. He sees himself as being Canadian, but he's of Trinidadian um, descent as well. But it's interesting because depending on where he is, he gets treated differently. Yes. Yes. His Canadian family, he gets treated one way. And when he's with his Trinidadian family, it's a different thing. So I, I often say to him, how does it feel? And he goes, mom, it, it doesn't matter to me. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't see it because I, I fully believe I'm, I'm of two cultures. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, what he has is the privilege of passing as white. And when we pass as white, we, when we pass as white or we, we are white, um, we carry a privilege and that, that allows us to be blind to certain difficulties. And his experience where somebody pointed out the fact that, are, you know, is she your mother? You know, it's those instances when we are next to people of color or we, that our privilege becomes very visible. 
Um, I mean, I have male privilege as much as I don't want it, you know, and it become, and I don't notice it in the world when I walk around and, you know, live my life, unless I'm, I'm with a woman and somebody treats her poorly and me better, you know, or speaks to me as if I'm the authority and she's not. And that's, you know, that's when that veil is lifted and we have that comparison. And that's what creates that empathy. You know, when we recognize our privilege and what we have, it creates a sense of empathy. But when we don't have that constant comparison, we get stuck in our privilege and we become blind by it. And we don't notice the problems. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I work with a lot of people, a lot of young people and young adults and older adults who might be similar to your son, you know, but they, they might appear or pass as white. You know, they might be Eastern European where the culture, you know, if you speak to the family, they'll, be, they'll talk about white people, even though they themselves are European. Right, right. You know, they talk about white people. And for them, it's about the culture, right? And, and these young people who've had to, you know, they, because they pass as white, or at least culturally, you know, physically, phenotypically, they are white. They ha- often have a struggle where they can't practice their Eastern European culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a, there's a fight. So, and I find for them, it's sometimes even a greater challenge because internally they feel like somebody else but externally they look like somebody else. Whereas people of color are always put aside, right? So people always assume that you're gonna be different. In fact, that's, that's another problem is people assume, you know, you know, people might look at you, Roxanne, and assume things just because you're brown. You're like, well, what are you talking about, right? Well, no, when you hear my name, you know, that's the interesting thing, Raymond. When I travel, um, you know, and I, I think when I did my, I did a talk on, on DI at um, Harvard um, online, and I was giving the example to bring the, something came up and I said, you know, my name is a bit of a, you know, um, I'm a bit of a hider because if you hear my name, you're not going to think anything about my background um, until, um, you know, I was going through a Heathrow and I always joke around. I, you know, I feel like I've lived in Canada longer. I've lived in Trinidad. So I feel like I'm of two cultures, but I'm different. Yeah. And yeah. I was going away with friends and I said to my friends, one British, one's French Canadian and jokingly, because these are friends, we can openly discuss race because it's, 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 I've always been from a different place, but we really never t- discuss it at, at length until recently. I would think it even brought um, friends around me to discuss things a little bit more. And I said to my friends jokingly, cause we joke a lot. We get out of the lounge and uh, I said, watch this. Now, these are my friends and we're, we're making fun of it at that point, not thinking of it. And that was just when they had brought in this 360 scanner. Mm-hmm. And so I said to them, okay, I'll see you on the other side, jokingly. I didn't even really think it through. I thought, and sure enough, we get into Heathrow. We're about to go through customs. They said, excuse me, ma'am, we'd like you to step aside. And they just, they looked at me and they were like stunned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, okay, they don't know that they're together because they're not married. They don't have the same last name. And then there's me and we're three friends traveling together. And I said, to bring that point home, it shows you sometimes to your point about hiding how your name, my name hides me until you see me visibly. And then at some point I get different treatments in Heathrow, right? You know, in Europe kind of thing. And I was blown, I was blown away and, you know, but I think talking about unconscious bias, that becomes important how, you know, whether it's my son with having the white skin or myself having that name, 
it shouldn't take that, you know, to have these conversations. We should have it be having these conversations more often. Yes. Well, bias is lifted through awareness and insight and education and knowledge. And that comes with experiences and empathy. Um, the dilemma is that we tend not to have these discussions in the workplace, primarily because we don't see that kind of discussion as professional. Mm. You know, we have to really revisit what it is that we consider to be professional. Uh, and, but this, this has to be one of those things that we consider professional, but we don't. And so we never really have that discussion. We never really have that awareness or that education. And even when we do bring people in, like one of the banded shortcut solutions is that we just consult externally. Mm-hmm. To bring somebody in, they'll do the talk and people are like, great job, you know, round of applause and that person leaves. But there's not often a, a consultation internally of what the experience is like for, you know, marginalized groups of people within an organization or in that workplace. And so, you know, you have you have an expert coming in and, and, and this is where, I mean, I, I enjoy giving talks, but I always say to people, I want to talk with you, not at you. And that's why I love having like, and certainly I can present, but I always say interrupt my presentation, please ask. But I think that's where people need to bring in those conversations and their experiences when they work at a place and feel safe and comfortable enough to do so. But if the risk is that you're going to come across as unprofessional or complaining, and that, that is typically how people of color are kind of reacted to when they're talking about their experiences, you know, you're being too sensitive they're a nice person. They, they didn't mean it that way. That's you're, you're taking it the wrong way. Whereas, you know, as a person of color, you're really highlighted to the, the nuances and the sensitivities. You, you pick up racism when you know it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, when you go into organizations, unconscious bias is one of those things that you have to dig deep into. How is it that you know that you can shift a culture with unconscious bias, you said you're lo- you're privileged to be able to go into companies that get it. But how is it that companies, let's say someone's listening, a CEO's listening, or someone pretty senior, and they're saying, "Yeah, I think we've done our job. We've you know like done certain trainings or whatever." How is it that they could get a pulse of whether they've really started to touch the nerve of really what unconscious bias is in their organization? If you're saying that you've done your job, you have not done your job. The, the issue of becoming equitable in any organization or society is never like a check mark. It is not something that we just simply do and leave alone. It really is about integrating that discussion into our regular practice. You know, it must always be top of mind because ultimately it, it is, there is a business case, there's a very strong business case, but I mean, how can, we, how can we carry on knowing that we're causing damage to a large percentage of our society, to a large percentage of our workforce? How is it that we expect people to be you know, loyal to a, to a company or to an organization or, or give their all when they're not really welcomed into a space? So I don't think um, when somebody says that they have done their job, they have not done their job. That there, there's more to be done there. Um, I missed it. What was that initial question? I'm sorry, I got sidelined by that. Just how would they know if they have have touched the pulse of what um, unconscious bias actually is? And what might they consider? Like, because if they if they thought, you know, there's you look with BLM, there's been top of mind now um, globally on on this movement. Um, So 
I would say it's kind of like um, EAP services back in the 90s, employee assistance programs with mental health. Every organization I worked in consulting there for every organization had it that they were doing it, but really were they integrating what was necessary for mental health and well-being to keep people at, at work? Most people, they, some of them were, most of them weren't, but they were putting that they were providing those services. So I'm thinking that this perspective now of, of Black Lives Matters has forced organizations to say, we, are, we have DI initiatives, but really are they doing what's necessary? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a really good question. How do you know you've hit the pulse? Um, when you feel the tension, when you feel the heat, that's when you know you're, you've hit the pulse. A lot of people, when they first start to really get it, there's a great sense of guilt. People talk about white guilt and white fragility, and typically people pull away. Like most things that are tied to anxiety, we tend to avoid the things that make us uncomfortable. But really, the more we face our fears, uh, the better we become at overcoming those difficulties. And so we... We, when we start to feel some anxiety, we know we've hit the target. And I say that to people, not just in organizations, but also my clients. If you're feeling nervous, you know you're on the right track. And typically, that's not how most leaders feel comfortable, right? They feel like they're on the right track when they feel confident. Mm. And that's, that's, a, that's a switch uh, in how we typically look at success. That, that is such a good point, right? Because most of us don't like to feel uncomfortable. And, and um, you know, uh, so I, I grew up, like I said, I live in a very small town. It's very, I'm probably um, uh, still quite very much so, it's a very anglicized um, environment, small little town in, in Niagara Falls. And when I moved here, oh goodness, I'm gonna date myself 30 something years ago, I was it. Like, uh, you know, other than maybe um, my husband at the time had had one, a person that he went to high school with that I think was from somewhere else. Um, and still today, it's still very, it's not diversified at all. And I, I recognize that, you know, sometimes what happens, and I'm going to use an example of myself. I grew up in Trinidad where there was every, uh, you know, color, creed, race. And then, you know, you don't think about it until you get to a bigger um, environment where you realize, whoa, I'm, I know I'm different, but I am different. <laughs> I truly yeah. yeah. am different, especially when nobody knows the what bucket to put me in. You know, yeah. where are you from? You know, I'm like, well, I'm from the Caribbean. Okay, well, what does that mean? And yeah. are you Indian? Are you, you know, are you black? Are you, you know, are you Egyptian? Are you people didn't know there wasn't a bucket to put me in. No. And no. Um, you know, now like, and then you come and you want to blend because I'm a teenager, right? What do you want to do? You want to blend in to your point. You use the concept of assimilation. Absolutely. I don't want to stick out. I, I mean, <laughs> absolutely not. I'm in grade 13 and I just want to like go to school and not ruffle any feathers. But you, what I liked about what you said is that at work now, thinking as an adult, I want my voice to be very unique. And I am a compilation of all the things that I've been exposed to. My, my culture, my, you know, my background, my family, my values, my worldview gives me a different frame. But if I have to stifle that potentially, then how is that going to impact the bottom line for the company? Yeah. yeah. You know, I might even challenge that, Roxanne. I, I don't think organizations really promote a unique or diverse perspective. Like, you know, they don't want a diverse voice. They, they want a voice that's still like unique, but still fits within a certain perspective. You know, like, so 
uh, people of color will often say, you know, I want to present a unique part, but it still has to fit through this white or, you know, Eurocentric kind of point of view. When it doesn't, like, you can't go too outside that box. You know, you can't truly say where you get that information from. You're still hiding pieces of yourself. And the reason for that is the same reason why my son didn't want to be Muslim when he was three. You know, it's because the standard is white. You know, I mean, even you and I will start to present a certain point of view and perspective that has to still fit. Like, I can't show up. You know, and, and I, I guess the Caribbean might be different because the colonialism will have, you know, will have a certain, they, it's a fairly Western dress right. and culture, right? right. But, but like, I don't think I would dare show up to work wearing Middle Eastern dress that I, that I would, that I like and feel comfortable in. It's not that I don't like it. It's not that I don't feel comfortable in it. I just would never do that because it would immediately mitigate my professionalism. People are like, who is this guy? Yeah, yeah. Why is he wearing a gown? Do you know, like, exactly. this is not a gown. This is like, you know, what is he, a priest? You know, like what's going on? You know, all these perceptions and we we filter our perceptions of people through that single lens. And so we, so yes, there's certain things I won't change and I can't change. But even with all my privilege, with all this work I do, I don't know how comfortable I'd feel because I know people would automatically other me. So I can't really truly bring, bring my full self. So let's talk about that from a mental health perspective. You talked a little bit about that. I, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, with my background, we're both, I'm a psychotherapist, you're a psychologist. You know, mental health and well-being is so very key to productivity and innovation, right? If I feel my optimal self, I bring the best forward, I bring my perspective, those types of things. How is diversity and inclusion, how does it impact mental well-being or mental health in the workplace? Well, I mean, considerably, if you were to think of, imagine if there was always a piece of yourself you had to hide. Imagine if you were always doubting who you were. Imagine if that was always a piece of who you are, whether you were conscious of it or not, but you were always made to feel like you were the other. The impact of that on mental health is going to be profound, right? Anxiety, depression, trauma, all those things show up. And the research actually does support it, that people of color tend to internalize racism, and that has an impact on performance, academic and work, has an impact on pro-social behaviors, which is why sometimes people say, well, you know, those people always act that way. Well, the impact is you're constantly traumatized. It is going to have an impact on social, social behaviors, has an impact on substance abuse. The amazing thing is when we start to become more inclusive, there's some research done on workplaces, productivity, performance, uh, you know, loyalty, all of that goes up. Um, there's been research done on countries. Now, I wouldn't say there's any country that does this perfectly, but the countries that do do it better have greater economic output because they're working on becoming more inclusive. Productivity on more inclusive teams was 10 times that of non-inclusive teams. Wow. You know, so massive outcome. The, the payoff is huge. And, and all we're doing is changing our sense of what we consider professional, making sure that we're equitable, so the payoff is massive, but it, it goes to show what do people gain by not wanting to address this? And, and some people would say people or leaders gain power. You know, there's always a hierarchy. You know, this kind of person is better than that kind of person. But I would say I'd go, I'd go deeper than that. This is not just about power. This is truly about anxiety. 
Because the moment we step into that anxiety, it removes us from a sense of authority and leadership has worked so hard to become confident and proficient that admitting error is really threatening. What leaders don't realize is when we admit vulnerability and error, we're actually much more relatable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's the leader you want to follow. If you think about the world today, what leaders do we appreciate the most? World leaders, political leaders, they're always the ones that are more relatable, the ones that seem more down to earth, that are generally successful, but have flaw to them. Yeah, we all want authenticity, which is what I talk a lot about. And, um, you know, gone are the days where you have the kind of the autocratic kind of leadership, uh, you know, dogmatic kind of perspectives. And especially in this day and age with the the stresses of, of the pandemic, we want relatability even more so, right? You know, and, and without that, it's like when, you know, if you were to say to me, Roxanne, hey, um, you know, be inauthentic, right, which is what I'm, I'm going to have to shut off. I don't know what part of myself I'm going to shut off, but that's going to bleed out some other way. Yes. Uh, Yes. With with me going to work and, you know, with whatever capacity, I'm not going to bring my 100% um, best capacity to work. And of course, that's going to, you know, based on whatever I'm doing in the organization, that's going to impact the bottom line, whether I'm a senior leader, yes. whether I'm on a team, whether I'm frontward facing with the, your customer, all those things. So the quantifiable kind of bottom line, I think would be probably um, astronomical, especially when we see, um, you know, the diversity numbers that we know here um, across Canada or even in, into the U.S., it, it's an interesting um, you know, that companies, I would think that every company should be looking more at a more inclusive kind of uh, perspective versus the band-aid like you've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I would say coaching is really important in all of this, right? Because you can't get to the macro level unless you work at the micro level, right? You got you to gotta start here in your head. And if there's something getting in your way and you don't feel comfortable, you know, as a leader, bringing it out to your group or to your organization, Get some coaching around, you know, uh, your bias, you know, somebody you can feel comfortable with to be able to have these really open and frank discussions where you're not feeling judged. And then you can shift that. Once you shift that, the movement in your organization, you know, is going to be profound because you as the leader have been able to make that shift. You've been able to move that. And once you see it in that way, you know, it makes all the difference. Many, many people of color have all got their white friends who they'll say they get it. They get it. And the reason they get it is because they've been friends. They've been with you. They, they didn't get it at the beginning. Right. They didn't get it at the beginning. But that, that experience of understanding what your life was like, is, it was almost like a coaching, right? And they're able to get it. And the closer you can have, home, you can have non-threatening conversations with your friends. Like I remember, um, because of course, I, you know, like you said, you, you meet your friends. They love you for who you are. And they never saw a difference. So I brought, you know, obviously the Caribbean culture and Calypso and roti and everything, right? Like everything that came with me, which people embraced and they loved. And then just recently with the BLM, I, I had four girlfriends over. And of course, this topic comes up, right? Never talked about it really microscopically previously. And one of my friends said her head hurt. Can we change the subject? The other person said, um, and these are people I love dearly. And the other person said, well, I've had a socioeconomic um, uh, inability that you didn't have because I grew up privileged. 
And someone said, well, you're 1% of the population in reference to education and economic viability. And I was, I would, we mind you, we, we talked it through, but I was flawed because nobody had, I had said to them at the end, I said, has every, because I've never had this frame. I said, has I, any one of you asked me what it's been like to live in Canada being non-white? And they've all looked at me and said, well, I've never thought of that. Well, this is the problem. With, this is the problem with not seeing color, right? There's a lot of people who say, "I'm colorblind. I, I I don't see it." You know, I love you for who you are. You know, I accept people in my workplace for who they are. You know, there is a difference. You can't solve a Rubik's cube if you're going to be colorblind. <laughs> what we've got, what we've got is a giant Rubik's cube in front of us. The truth is that there are differences in experiences based on our phenotype based on our names, based on our cultures and our religions, there is a huge difference. But people who are marginalized tend to be quiet about that mm -hmm. because they can never really truly bring it forward because even with friends, as you said, you know, my head hurts. Can we, can we please stop this? Like you got a headache. Imagine the migraine I've been living with, you know, for the entirety of my life. Um, that's, that's the dilemma, I would say. You know. you know, I, I got to tell you another funny story before I know you, we, you and I probably could chat about this for a fair amount of time. I remember when I took my husband to Trinidad, this was, a, this is, and I was quite young. I was 20, 21. And I took him and I, I tried to explain as much as I could, right? Like, I mean, you're, they're going to experience this, this, this is different, this is whatever. And then he lands and he's the, you know, he's blonde, blue eyed, very, very, you know, light. And he, he was, you know, downtown in San Fernando and a little town that I grew up in. And he goes, I am the old, I, I finally might, he said, might get a small understanding of what it might have been like for you coming to live where we live now. Yeah. yeah. Never yeah. experienced it before. Except that because of colonialism, when white people might feel like they stand up, but they tend to be treated better. Absolutely. You Absolutely. know, in communities, oh, the white guy is here. Right, you know. right, right. Oh, but wow. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there was still privilege within that. But he had, with the point that I, he had never understood previous to that was what it was felt like for me when I walked in somewhere and every 30, I'm talking, well, 35 years ago and everybody would look around because they had never, because I was different. And he goes, yeah. no, it's just in your head. I'm like, no, it's not, man. It's, it's, yeah. it's real. And he, for the first time he could find he because he was experiencing it maybe with other um, caveats attached to it. But for the first time he was like, wow, I, I've, I finally kind of get what it's like when you are feeling that um, you're, st you're sticking out because you are so different. Yes. You know, which was, uh, which was kind of nice to hear. Um, but like you said, it, you know, so many other things attached to it. Now, Raymond, this has been fascinating. Um, and I'm sure you're, you're consulting and speaking and coaching. I'm interested where if, if a senior leader or CEOs are looking to make, um, start to make a decision about a more cohesive kind of strategy for their companies what where where should they start i think it begins with a conversation with a difficult conversation um you know i, I think uh you know i'll make a little plug here uh you know i have a podcast with a colleague of mine lisa schmidt 
uh, and we have these difficult conversations on a regular basis on our podcast is called different people. Uh, season two is coming out and it's going to be focusing on leadership and organization. So that might be a good starting place. So you, we've got to have these difficult conversations. If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can't really make true, like evocative insight oriented change. Freud said insight is the cure. Uh, and it's true because once we understand the changes become natural, right? And we often try to move to the change without getting the, the insight. And then, then the change is awkward and, you know, kind of like modular. Um, so I'd say start with a conversation and start with people that you know that might be different and admit to what you don't know. And they may or may not want to have a conversation with you, but find somebody who will. And I'd say start with that individual. Start micro with you before you go macro to your organization. Uh, and then pull people on board. And I would say, consult both externally and internally. You know, don't just go outside to look for the expert. Now, there's a ton of experts out there that'll do this work. You'll find them, but also ask internally, what are we missing? And be ready to hear some tough answers. Well, that's amazing. I know Lisa very well. Uh, we're both in a, a writing group together. Um, we've been spending months together now so that uh, I didn't make the connection, but um, she's, she's awesome. I will ensure that the podcast link um, for your podcast will be in the show, show notes because I think people should listen and get a, more on this information. So if anybody's wanting to reach out to you directly, maybe they're wanting coaching or they're even looking for um, strategy or even um, you to train uh, their employees, where, where could they get a hold of you? Uh, check out my website, leadwithdiversity.com. Uh, I'm over there. And um, yeah, you can find all my stuff over there, Lead With Diversity. Awesome. awesome. Well, thanks again, Raymond. So what am I taking away? You know, I'm taking away that if we're inauthentic um, because we're different, we're not going to bring the full, um, our full selves to work. And without our full selves, without that full version of ourselves, um, we are really actually crippling capacity to be innovative, creative, and be a real part um, of the organization. So to think that through as senior leaders, um, how is it that you're allowing your employees to be authentic in every realm, uh, regardless of what diversity they bring to work? So thanks a lot again, Raymond. And for anyone uh, wanting uh, more information on authentic leadership, you can reach me at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit RoxanneDurhodge.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.